Hello, and welcome to the Osterholm Update, COVID-19, a weekly podcast on the COVID-19 pandemic with Dr. Michael Osterholm. Dr. Osterholm is an internationally recognized medical detective and director of the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy, or CIDRAP, at the University of Minnesota. In this podcast, Dr. Osterholm will draw on more than 45 years of experience investigating infectious disease outbreaks to provide straight talk on the COVID-19 pandemic. I'm Chris Dahl, reporter for CIDRAP News, and I'm your host for these conversations. We've got a lot to get to in this episode, Mike, from the rush to reopen to vaccines to what's going on in Sweden. Uh, But before we get to all that, I'd like to start with your opening thoughts. Oh, thank you, Chris. Um, Another busy week, a week with uh, lots of issues, questions, concerns about where are we going with the uh, COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, But I'd like to start out as I have in past episodes and I think this particular uh, dedication, which I'd like to make, is actually to what I believe will be many of the listeners. Um, Over the course of the past weeks to months, we've all been trying to internalize what this means. Uh, At first, it was quite abstract because none of us knew anyone who actually was a COVID-19 case. Uh, And then some of us knew people, and then some of us knew people who died. Um, Others still... Uh, may not have known anyone who's a case or who have died, but we're all sitting here uh, internalizing what will this look like when it's all over with. And I've talked to more people in the past week who are admitting to themselves that they do think once a day, twice a day, when they wake up, when they go to bed at night, when am I going to get it? Am I going to get it? What will it do to me? And those who have known people who have been seriously ill or have died, it even weighs more in their minds. And, you know, I think it's really important that we all acknowledge that it's okay to feel that way, that it's it's something that's normal. I know I think about it, and there's times I just want to say, damn it, get it over with. I, I don't want it. I don't want it, but just get it over with. And I realize that that's going to continue to happen for many of us for many more months to come. And why that's important is because we're going to have to learn how to live with this. This is the part I was talking about over the last few weeks about while we've unfortunately had to learn how to die with this virus, how the pain and the agony of these illnesses and these deaths, we're going to have to also continue to learn how to live with this thing. And I know, you know, there are times when I, in my building I live in, I'm We'll be in an elevator wondering who just took the elevator before me. Um, is this my time? And I think all of you out there who feel this, who know this, who wonder about this, it's okay. And we'll just have to keep hanging together and uh, moving forward. And so today I dedicate it to all of us that are the worried, the ones who think about it, the ones who know that to get to that 60 to 70% level of infection or hopefully vaccine-induced immunity, we're going to know a lot of people. There'll be family, there'll be friends, there'll be colleagues, there'll be neighbors, there'll be people who we don't know but we've read about. And uh, so today this this broadcast is dedicated to us, to us. And uh, hopefully um, we all can appreciate that uh, it's only going to continue to go on and we need to be there for each other. So with that, that's my dedication. 
So despite that worry, uh, here in the U.S., we continue to see a rush by some states to reopen and get people working again and get the economy started. But on Capitol Hill today, Dr. Anthony Fauci told the Senate committee that if the country reopens too quickly, the consequences could be really serious. Was that the message that politicians and the public need to hear? Well, the message all of us need to hear is just the truth. Just tell the truth. Tell what we know and what we don't know. Straight talk all over again. And I just have to remind everyone that uh, we're in this very difficult position of living in the world of COVID viral uh, gravity, where in fact, uh, the five to 15%, maybe as high as 20% in the New York area of population that have already been infected with this virus make up a very small segment of our US population and for that matter of the world. And for us to get to that 60 or 70% level just to get to herd immunity, and remember, it'll continue to transmit after that, it's just that it will slow down or to hopefully have a vaccine, Uh, hope is not a strategy, Um, we're going to go through a lot between now and then. I worry that when I hear these kinds of statements like made today, that the public will perceive this to mean that if we just get over this last hump, if we just get done with this curve now, we get to summer, we'll be okay. And I know that... People are probably getting tired of hearing this, but I keep telling everyone we're just in the second inning of a nine-inning game. And what we've got to do is understand that we have to develop the kind of plans, and I'll talk more about that today. We, we need to do that, to, of learning how to live with this virus, what we're going to do. I think that Tony's remarks are right on the mark with regard to his testimony. Um, we will very likely see a potentially substantial increase in cases over the next four to six weeks, uh, and that it will be tied back to uh, this kind of reopening, as we call it. And I I think it's really important we take a moment to reflect on what does this mean, what's happening, uh, where do we go with this information? Well, at best right now, it appears that at least 42 of the 50 states are reopening uh, their previous Uh, closures of businesses, uh, measures for physical distancing. And ironically, uh, as much as just uh, three to four weeks ago, we were all talking about how we would reopen using uh, measures that had been agreed to by public health, the idea of at least a two-week decline in new cases, uh, increased capacity in our hospitals, um, adequate protective equipment for uh, our healthcare workers, uh, testing that would be available for everyone that needed one. Uh, not one of the 42 states that we know of have met any of those criteria. So that um, there surely was a change in plans, which is okay. That's uh, anyone's prerogative as a local or state leader here. But I think what it does is it really confuses the public is to say, now, what's different now? We all understand our economy is hurting mightily. We know a lot of people that are hurting mightily. And uh, to not appreciate that and want to address that um, is is obviously not an option. At the same time, this virus is not an option right now. And we have to understand that it will continue to spread and transmit uh, for the foreseeable future, at least as we are seeing cases rise in a number of states. I think that the governors are making a strategic mistake here by reopening, not 
because of reopening, but be doing it without an objective criteria. Uh, I've heard from many private citizens over the course of the past week. I've heard from a number of news media sources. Uh, you know, why are we doing this uh, without some criteria? What does this mean? Uh, everyone wants to get back and reopened. And I worry that we're setting up a system where people are losing faith in the decision-making process because they feel like it's so arbitrary. They feel like I have to turn on to get a daily press conference to find out what's going to happen with my life today. Is there a roadmap? Is there some way that I can objectively understand how a decision is going to be made? I've raised this question now and said, okay, if you don't want to use the criteria for closing uh, and opening as we have or previously uh, suggested, what are you going to do going forward? What if we suddenly see a fourfold increase in cases in state A? Will that mean we'll go back to a closure? What kind of closure? Why will it be there? And I fear that if we don't come up with more objective criteria that match up with why we're doing what we're doing, what we hope to accomplish with it, and when will we know if we did accomplish that, so that then we can again release or relax what's happening. And at this point, I think that we're um, going to be challenged going forward by the public or they will continue to lose more and more confidence in what we're doing uh, if we don't come up with more of those object objective criteria. Now, I realize the art of governing isn't always about objective criteria. It's in part about understanding the moment, understanding what the needs of a population are, and addressing them. But I think you can do both. I think we can be sensitive to the economic issues. We can be sensitive to what does this particular decision mean for the public uh, as it relates to the economy? What does it mean in terms of disease transmission? And I think that, that it's interesting that poll data that are now coming out are beginning to show a rapid erosion of public support for what we're doing in this country around the COVID-19 actions. Uh, just uh, today, the CNN came out with a poll that now says that 55% of the U.S. public believes that the U federal government is doing a poor job preventing the spread of coronavirus in the United States. That's up eight points from a week ago, almost up 20 points from four weeks ago. And I think you're going to continue to see that there will be this continued erosion. Now, that's to be expected in part. We know that uh, in previous uh uh, outbreak situations, there is a fatigue factor that sets in. If you ask people to do something for a certain period of time, after a while, they just get tired of it. But what was found is, is that they get tired of it when they, in part, don't understand why they're doing it. And so I hope that if we've learned nothing from this current experience, is that we have to have more objective criteria. And particularly, do not say that you're going to abide by something of having X or Y, and then don't do it. Um, if you want to change X or Y, that's okay. I don't want to feel like we're locked in, but then the public will understand why. And hopefully we'll make a convincing argument why what we're doing in public health makes sense for the economy. So, you know, this is not meant to be a, a some kind of negative reflection on all the governors. I think they're trying to do the very best job they can. They're trying to balance a very, very difficult combination of crises in public health, crises in the economy. Um, and But I, I can see the way forward is only going to be if we bring more objectivity to this, more of a roadmap, uh, and, and that's what will keep the public with us, I think. 
The U.S., uh, of course, is not the only country talking about reopening. That process has already begun in South Korea and Germany, two countries that have been championed for acting quickly, ramping up testing and getting the pandemic under control. Uh, But in the last week, we've seen a new outbreak in South Korea and the reproductive rate of the virus inching upwards in Germany. Uh, What does this tell us about the challenges going forward? Well, I think you could add, actually, to that, that we've seen increased activity in China in the last week, including an outbreak now in Wuhan itself, the first since the major outbreak last January. Um, This just speaks to the virus that we've been talking about for the last four months. Um, This is a virus that I call a leaky vessel virus. If there's one little uh, pinhole in a bucket full of virus, it'll leak out. And that's the kind of transmission we're going to continue to see, particularly with the respiratory transmission. When people uh, conclude that a certain country model or a certain approach is the way to go, uh, I think you'll find very quickly that uh, just wait a little while and see what happens. Uh, We've seen that in countries like Japan, uh, Singapore, uh, as well as Germany and uh, South Korea. So, Surely you can bring more control to it as they have done in those countries. But I think even Germany will be an interesting case where it's almost you're always going to have your foot on the accelerator and on the brake. Uh, how do you limit distance uh, distancing activities between each other? How do you bring those together? How do you um, uh, advise the population that if we don't do this, the cases will increase or decrease? Now, I have to add one last piece to this, however that, uh, as I've mentioned before, one of the challenges I think we're having going forward is is that despite all of these efforts, um, we have one wild card in all of this about country control, and that is what the virus itself is going to do. Um, This may sound uh, terribly insensitive, and I surely don't mean it to be, but as I have said before, I would actually be much more concerned if over the course of the next four to six weeks around the world, we saw the virus activity begin to drop somewhat precipitously. And you'd say, well, how can you want that? That means more people ill, more people dying. If that's the case, I think you really have much more of a reason to believe that this could be an influenza-like pandemic uh, experience, where Uh, As we saw in the early waves of all the other influenza pandemics in the last 250 years, sporadic, in some cases marked, but sporadic activity uh, around the world, and then have the virus suddenly disappear uh, for anywhere from two to four months, and then come back with a vengeance in a large wave. Um, That would make me nervous that that might be what we're seeing here. Now, again, as we uh, documented in our scenario uh, paper that we published several weeks ago in the SIDRAP uh, viewpoint, uh, there are surely other explanations for how this coronavirus may get from the 5 to 15 percent up to the 60 to 70 percent, but the influenza one is one I worry about. So as countries are trying to control this, first of all, please know there is no perfect model. There is none. There are models that have surely given us hope for a better approach. Uh, there are models that have existed in countries that have unique characteristics that make what they do much easier. If you're the five plus million people living in the two islands of New Zealand, that's a lot easier to control that virus there than it is in large metropolitan areas of many of our major cities and countries around the world. Uh, But the real telltale will be what the virus itself decides to do over the course of the next uh, months. And uh, we're all going to be waiting on that one. 
Speaking of different models, Mike, uh, once again, we've received a lot of email questions from our listeners, many of whom are interested in the different approach that Sweden has taken to fighting the coronavirus. So uh, uh, Tamara asks, uh, what are your thoughts on Sweden's decision not to impose a complete lockdown? Uh, and is, is it that their population is healthy enough that they can do this? The Sweden situation has been unfortunately mischaracterized by many as a experience, and it's not that at all. Um, when we look back on what Sweden originally did, they did not do all the social distancing, as has been called by them. I continue to call it physical distancing. Uh, they left bars and restaurants open with some distancing there. Schools remained open. Um, and for the longest period from February into towards the end of March, everyone said, look at the rates of disease, the rates of deaths in Sweden, Denmark, Norway, and Finland are all the same. And yet those other three countries are ones that put into place much more stringent distancing recommendations, much like we had had in the United States. Well, then uh, in March, the four countries diverged. Uh, Denmark, Norway, and Finland continued to show a certain increase, much more gradual in number of cases and deaths, and Sweden took off. Uh, such that by the end of April, Sweden was very, very different than the other three countries. Uh, they now have, as a country of 10,333,000 people, 27,272 cases of uh, in COVID infection. That includes 3,313 deaths as of today. Their rate of deaths, 32 per 100,000, even exceeds the United States of 24.7 per 100,000. Over 70% of those deaths were in long-term care facilities, for which there now has been a, a criminal investigation opened about the actual transmission in those, those long-term care facilities and what the implications are. Meanwhile, as you look at the overall rate, as I pointed out, the 32 per 100,000 deaths, that compares to 9 per 100,000 in Denmark, 4 per 100,000 in Norway, and 5 per 100,000 in Finland substantially below what Sweden had seen. Even if you looked at just general cases, their rate of cases per 100,000, their 27,000 I mentioned, is at 263 per 100,000. Whereas if you look at the others, they range between 108 and 181 per 100,000 in terms of Finland, Norway, and Denmark. So I don't see anything magical about Sweden. Now there's been one additional claim, however, that they are on their way to developing herd immunity, this idea of 60 to 70%. And I've actually had the opportunity to see some of the seroprevalence data that has been coming out of uh, Sweden over the course of the last two weeks, including a recent study report on healthcare workers. I've seen no data that supports that there's more than 20% of the population of Sweden who previously had this infection, i.e. trying to get to that 60 to 70% herd immunity. They are all a long, long ways from achieving that. So to me, this is another example where we all want an answer that works, something that is not so bad to do and surely not so bad with the disease. This unfortunately doesn't work here. This is, again, biologic physics at work. This virus is going to do what it's going to do. It may take a different time course than some countries versus others. It may take a different route of who it infects first in terms of at-risk populations, but it's gonna do what it's gonna do. And I hope that the Sweden example 
will cause everyone to take pause and just step back and say, okay, now what really is happening here? There are no easy answers here. There's no easy outs. I hope the concept of the Sweden model is now gone. It's done. People realize it's not what everyone thought it was, and it's not going to be that going forward. Uh, and and it just means that we're going to be in this slug together um, without an easy answer. And just a note for our listeners, uh, we actually have a new email. Uh, it is now osterholmupdate at umn.edu, and you can find a link to that email in our episode description. I'd like to turn to vaccines now. Uh, last week, Pfizer announced it was beginning to test its mRNA coronavirus vaccine candidates in U.S. volunteers and said it's possible, if all goes well, that the vaccine could be ready for emergency use by fall. A group at Oxford University has made similar claims about their vaccine candidate. Uh, but Mike, you told Stat News that you're worried about unrealistic expectations with vaccines. Uh, can you elaborate on those concerns? Well, you know, I've used this analogy before on this broadcast, and uh, it keeps coming home. Just because one of my good friends who's an Iowa farmer wants to harvest his corn in half the amount of time from planting to harvest doesn't mean by planting twice as many acres he can get that done. Still takes the full growing season. Well, that's kind of a common sense approach we have to look at these vaccines. We can surely do a lot of work to try to shave off uh, an extra period of time and how we're looking at these vaccines, how we're evaluating them, how they are studied for safety, and actually how they're manufactured. But there is going to be a specific time period that's required. In a really quite outstanding article by Helen Branswell on STAT this past week, entitled Mounting Promises on COVID-19 Vaccines are Feeling False Expectations, Experts Say, I think laid out all the challenges we have. One being, first, to show that they work. And what does that mean? How long do they work? Uh, that's just going to take time. If you are going to try to understand, does it protect for a couple of months? Does it protect for six months? Does it protect for a year? Does it protect for a lifetime? We're obviously going to be studying those for that extended period of time. Now, we don't have to wait three or four years to find out how well they protect. If we've got protection for even a few months, I'd say we got something here that in the short term may be worth it. What if we have a vaccine that only protects 20% of the time? Is that a vaccine we're going to manufacture and give to the world? Uh, will it shortchange additional vaccine research that's being done? Uh, and so we have many questions like this that need to be answered. Some of the other questions that we aren't addressing but are essential that we do is with these more than 100 vaccine candidates that exist and research now being done by countries around the world, how do we actually distribute this vaccine? Who gets it? among the many billions of people that want it when it becomes available. Who's first in line? What if, does it matter which country gets the vaccine first or which country actually has the manufacturing capacity? Um, if we get the vaccine first or get one of, will we share our vaccine with the rest of the world? If we do, will we share it with the high, middle, and low-income countries at the same time? That will mean we won't get it here necessarily in any time soon. What if China gets a vaccine first? Will they share with us? Will we expect them to? And we've not really addressed any of these international issues, which right now should be all about a global collaborative that each of us are helping each other. Maybe we'll have multiple vaccines that will make it, but then which vaccine gets made where and how does it get distributed? 
will we have enough vials? Will we have enough syringes? Will we have enough needles if we're, in fact, going to be giving this vaccine uh, that route, which surely appears to be the case? And so we have so many of these questions that have yet to be answered that are going to be critical before vaccine India ultimately arrives uh, and protects people, again, if we can get a protective vaccine. And so I think that, that we all just have to be a little careful. And I have to say, I had a question asked to me of a president of a college in this country who was very serious and well-intended when he said to me, well, I've just read that we may have vaccines in September, meaning that we'll find that a vaccine works. Will I be able to vaccinate all my students in September? And I thought, wow, no concept of a supply chain, manufacturing, distribution situation that in of itself could take substantial time. And, and at this point with manufacturing, we could be talking about literally months before we're able to make some of these vaccines. So uh, it, when I don't want to temper the comments that vaccine isn't going to be important. It is potentially the game changer. And, you know, we all hope that we're going to have that happen sooner than later. But at the same time, we have to be realistic about it. And remember, we're on virus time. We're not in human time right now. What this virus can do or will do in the next 12 to 14 months could be everything. And if we don't have a vaccine in that time, I can't say that's a failure of the vaccine development community. Uh, it's, it's just we're asking so much of what we have. I also would uh, draw everyone's attention to another article that appeared this past week in Science Magazine by Barney Graham, a very well-respected uh, vaccine researcher at the NIH, entitled Rapid COVID-19 Vaccine Development. And in this article, um, uh, Barney lays out in a very clear and compelling way the challenges we have with avoiding any safety pitfalls with this vaccine. The fact that there are conditions that we are concerned about that very well could lead to reactions in humans that could be very, very difficult uh, and frankly deadly. One I've talked about before on this uh, podcast called antibody-mediated or antibody-dependent enhancement, where having a little bit of antibody uh, is in fact uh, not a good thing after a vaccine. If in, you do get infected, that combination of the little bit of antibody and uh, the virus causes this over-vigorous immune response. There's also several other potential risks associated with this development. Now, none of us know that this will happen. Uh, we sure have reason to think it could, and we'll have to study that. That's going to be very important. And we may even get to a point one day, quite honestly, where we do find there's such a risk. One out of per 100,000 will experience some adverse event, but we also know that many, many more will die if those same 100,000 don't get the vaccine. So we have some challenges before us that are not just a straightforward, okay, we're studying this thing, it's going to be done. And uh, we, in public health, clearly are putting so many of our eggs in the vaccine basket because that is our one get out of jail card. But we also have to be realistic. And I worry that when I got that question from the college president, I realized how many other people out there are leaning on, leaning into, if not darn right, just going head straight into the concept that the vaccine's coming, it'll be here. You know, you guys stop scaring us. We're going to be okay. And boy, I hope that that happens. But uh, at this point, I surely wouldn't count on it. Mike, is there a potential for us to have several 
vaccines or is there going to be um, a desire to pick the, the one that seems to work best? Well, first of all, we have a global community that gets to decide that. Every country can license any vaccine they want or not want relative to the regulatory process for that country. It's very possible that we could have different uh, kinds of vaccines that work equally well. And depending on which country, which company is in that country where the studies were done, we could have different vaccines that could be licensed. That'd be great, uh, particularly if we could produce more of the vaccine in a shorter period of time and get it into people so that we uh, can prevent them from becoming infected and ill. So I wouldn't be surprised by that. I think that um, uh, there is such a uh, major press forward right now by all the different countries of the world that uh, have done vaccine research in the past, the United States, uh, the EU, Canada, uh, we're looking at Asia. So we'll see. Um, The more the merrier, the better it is. But again, I just come back to the fact that uh, here in this country, we have to be very careful not to make assumptions that the vaccine will arrive and uh, somehow will be rescued at the last minute, just like in a good movie. Um, I don't think we can count on that at all. So I want to turn to another topic that's of uh, great interest to our listeners. Um, and this is the the theory that the coronavirus originated in a lab in Wuhan. Uh, and it should be noted, this is a theory that's also been presented by some U.S. politicians, notably Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. Uh, and our SIDRAP uh, news reporter, Mary Van Buzikam, uh, wrote about it today. Uh, so, Mike, is there any evidence um, for the Wuhan lab theory? One of the challenges we have with this uh, pandemic is is that, uh, like so many other uh, controversial, complicated, and painful issues, we always have to throw in the conspiracy theorist part of it. And um, this has become more than just a minor issue. Uh, some of my most uh, hated and difficult mail activity that I've received over the course of my career have occurred literally just in the past few weeks because it's been suggested that people such as myself are part of the deep state uh, trying to undo our government by covering up for the Chinese. Um, You know, that's reality. That's what it is. But the bottom line message is, is that no. Uh, And I think Mary's article, uh, which I I was not part of, I've read it like you, uh, really, uh, I think, lays out in quite amazing detail what the conventional scientific wisdom is on this issue, both in terms, was it a man-made virus? The answer is absolutely no. Was it a virus that leaked out of the Wuhan laboratory? There's no evidence to support that, including the fact that this particular virus was not even among the inventory of isolates in the lab prior to the outbreak. Um, And I feel quite confident that to uh, continue to fixate on this only takes us away from keeping our eye on the ball of preventing the pandemic. So I'm very confident that uh, this is not an issue. Uh, it, it is not one that uh, uh, will ever necessarily be decided uh, by everyone because of course, how do you go back now and show for a fact that this virus jumped from a pangolin to a human and uh, on such and such a day and did that. But at the same time, the body of evidence is compelling uh, and I have complete confidence that uh, this is just another example of Mother Nature doing what Mother Nature did. Um, we didn't suspect when SARS happened and jumped from animals to humans, or when MERS occurred in the Arabian Peninsula and jumped from animals to humans, that there was some government intervention. 
this is just the same way. And I think that um, I know that this won't end it. Uh, I suspect my comments right now will only make matters worse for some. But I am very confident that uh, uh, we need to move on. And this is not an issue. I urge all of you to read Mary's story uh, with all of its interviews, all of its links. I think you'll also come away with the same conclusion. As you know, Mike, uh, SIDRAP last week published our second viewpoint on COVID-19, and it was on crisis communications. So uh, using that as a guide, uh, if you had to grade the nation's government leaders and public health officials on their communication during this pandemic, uh, how would they fare? I think we all need to go back to school. (laughs) We have uh, some challenges ahead of us. Um, First of all, I just have to say again, thank you to Peter Sandman and Jody Lennard, who wrote this particular piece. Uh, They have been, without a doubt, among the very most important uh, and critical thinking crisis management and messaging experts in the world. And we're very fortunate to have them participate with us. Um, I'm sure I sound a little bit biased here because I have been a student of theirs for many years trying to learn how to best do communication under difficult uh, terms, uh, in this case, a crisis. But I think that they have demonstrated time and time again the success of their approach. And many companies, many organizations, even some governments have used this information uh, when in a crisis uh, to, to move forward. If I could just, again, briefly urge everyone to go read this piece. It's on the SIDRAP Viewpoint site, our number two report. I think the first thing, the first message out of the shoot that they come out with is one that right now um, is a real challenge, and that is don't over-reassure, which typically backfires and lowers your credibility. This is the most common crisis communication mistake. I don't need to say any more about what's happening at the federal level. Um, You know, we are talking about a virus that's going to take our population from a 5 to 15, up to 20% in some select areas of previous infection to one of 60 or 70% unless we have a vaccine that edges out any of that number beforehand. Think of all the pain and suffering and death and economic disruption we've had to get to this point now. How much more do we have left? Now, that's not to scare people out of their wits, it's to scare them into their wits and say, okay, what are we as a government doing? How are we going to handle the potential major increase in cases? How are we going to make sure that our businesses maintain some kind of, of semblance of operation in ways that works for society and also works for the businesses? How are we going to plan economically so that we already have one paycheck out there for this initial shutdown, but I could see us being shut down multiple times for extended periods of time uh, that are going to require more investment by the federal government just to get us through this. Let's start thinking about that now. And so I think the idea of don't over reassure, and it's so funny because I I will get emails from time to time saying, you know, boy, you're a scary guy. Why don't you shut up? And, um, you know, I've often said that, uh, you know, I'd rather be sorry for something I did than something I didn't do if it could make a difference. And I think in this case, this is where you should never sugarcoat anything and you should never coat it in fear. You should just say, this is what we know, and this is what we don't know, and this is how we're going to find out what we don't know and what to do. The second uh, uh, recommendation from them actually follows on that comment. They basically said, you know, proclaim, not just acknowledge, uncertainty. 
because doing so is paradoxically more credible than voicing overconfidence. Be willing to speculate responsibly and acknowledge opinion diversity. Well, that's me. <laughs> I, uh, I unfortunately have to admit, uh, but I do it with as much honesty as I can. I probably know less about influenza today than I did 10 years ago, because the more I've learned, the less I know. And clearly we're in that same mode with the coronaviruses. Um, you know, I was one of those people that very first week of January saying, well, this is never going to be a pandemic. This is another Mar- MERS or SARS situation. Was I wrong? Uh, but by January 20th, we knew what the truth was going to be. The next thing is to validate emotions. Your audience is in your own. Um, you know, I think this is one of the most difficult parts for all of us because we don't like to have to deal with our emotions, particularly when we deal with business and we deal with the scientific issues. And I think that's as I started out this podcast. Emotions are everything about us. You know, I hate going to bed at night wondering, is tomorrow my day? Am I going to get hit by this damn thing? Um, But that's what we have to do. And I think that helps us all kind of come to an even plane where we're all, you know, we're all in this together in that regard. They also said give people things to do. Better yet, offer a menu of things to do. And we're all working on that. The challenge with this is, is that you have to have a group willing to come together to agree to that menu. Uh, and I think that's been the challenge that we have, because if you don't believe it's going to be a long-term problem, then you don't have to take on this menu. Uh, and that, that's something we have to work on. Admit and apologize for errors. You know, I promise you from our uh, center, we will always do that. And uh, if we make a mistake, uh, we do. And I think that's a really very important point, too, is, is that we learn from those. And sometimes your mistakes are not even intentional. You know, I sometimes think about after all the hours and hours and hours I talk each week, I went, oh, my God, you know, what could I have said wrong this week? That's just a slip of the tongue. But it's really important to admit and apologize for errors. OK, the next one is to share dilemmas, including the various options for moving out of lockdown. Uh, I have said for some time we cannot live on the guardrails of this experience. We can't live in a 15 to 18 month shutdown where we try to duplicate what happened in Wuhan to make sure no one gets this infection. We are going to sustain casualties. It's pure and simple. We're in a war with this damn virus. But at the same time, we can't just let this go willy nilly as uh, it could very well if we don't try to bring some control to it. If that happens, we will see many, many deaths, many severe illnesses, we will bring down our healthcare system as we know it from time to time. And not only that, but we will uh, infect many, many healthcare workers, will not have adequate uh, protection. And we will compromise the health of the entire community, even beyond those with uh, COVID 19, the heart attack patient, the uh, person with the stroke who can't make it into the hospital because they're overfilled or they don't have adequate um, resources to provide the care. So we need to share those. Uh, kinds of of messages and options for what do we do. You've heard me say uh, multiple occasions we need to thread the rope through the needle. We're trying to find ways. One of the things I think that has been a challenge is what do we do to protect that part of the population, which is otherwise not uh, protected? And uh, we now know that, in fact, uh, as we look at the comorbidity risk factors that exist in uh, several studies, Uh, um, in terms of increasing the risk of severe disease and dying, that they are substantial. And in fact, even here in Minnesota, we've uh, 
looked at this information is related to a recent study that was put out by the Kaiser Foundation. And it turns out that upwards of 40% or more of our population actually has underlying risk factors that could put them at increased risk for disease. Well, now, how are we going to thread this rope? Uh, by age, by, by gender, by characteristics such as something like uh, body mass index, where we know with obesity today, you're at increased risk. So we've got some real challenges there, but this is what we need to be doing right now is we need to basically laying out the options. And we're not having that discussion at a national level at all. I will continue to push for that discussion. I will put our points out there saying that the guardrails are not acceptable. The middle ground is where we got to go. We can't be afraid to talk about that. We can't be afraid to acknowledge that we're in this for the long haul. So we have to share our dilemmas. Finally, I think the last recommendation is, in a sense, uh, kind of ties, ties it all together in which accept that the principles of crisis communication are counterintuitive and that crisis communication is a field of study and practice, meaning that telling people what they don't want to hear, proclaiming you're wrong, telling them you don't know sometimes, trying to get others to participate with you on solving dilemmas who may not be your best friend, for that matter, they may not even like you, but that's what we have to do. And so I think that this article that I just urge everyone to read it, I think you'll find it to be very, very helpful. Uh, and I think it represents a, a, a very important a tool as we take on this pandemic. And uh, what's the, uh, the focus of the next viewpoint going to be? Our next viewpoint is going to get into testing. Um, and I think it will be a document that's unlike any to date that have occurred with testing. You know, testing has come down to the concept of a test. And it's so much more than that. It's a system. It's all the way from uh, providing the machines, the reagents, uh, the sampling devices, all these things that we need that we haven't even thought about. And what I mean by thinking about it, for example, we are now running the testing machines in this country in ways that they've never been run before, meaning that we're running them 24-7 to keep up with all the testing. Remember, these are the same machines that existed before for testing many other uh, specimens for other clinical conditions. We're beginning to see that challenge of, of these machines breaking down, the uh, availability or lack thereof of parts, technical experts to come and fix them. We haven't even thought about that. You know, if you and I had a brand new car that would go 200 miles an hour and we could run it for three hours and go, wow, we just went 600 miles. Isn't that something? That might work. But what if you did it 24-7 for six weeks in a row? I suspect that by the end of that time period, that car wouldn't be running nearly as well. We're having that challenge right now. This particular document will also go into the issues of the different kinds of tests. And there is no perfect test. We have to understand that. They will give you false positives. They'll give you false negatives. Um, and depending on what you're using it for, that may be an important point. When I hear someone say that we're screening the, our employees or those people in a, given, in a work area so that there's no one here who has the virus, but 5 or 6% of the time I get false negatives, that's a lot of people that all it takes is one of them to come into your workplace not knowing that they're infected. We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about the system. We're going to talk about how information is used. We're going to talk about smart testing. 
the right test at the right time for the right person, for the right result, for the right outcome and action. That's all part of a system. When should we be testing? Where should we be testing? And right now, I am. Uh, it, it's very frustrating to see these experts who have never really ever been on the front lines of public health. They just come out and keep saying, we need 40 million of this test a day, or we need 30 million of that, whatever, without any understanding, what are we doing this for? One is, of course, we need to diagnose patients who have a COVID infection. We want to know what's happening with it in our communities. When I hear people say we need testing to reopen, I'm asking them why. It didn't matter this time. Nothing I saw impacted testing to reopen. And so what we're going to try to get at is the heart of this, because testing is very important, but it's part of a test system. So I'm looking forward to this. And then right after that, we're doing contact tracing. Uh, the next document after that. And I think people will also find that to be interesting. It'll be very challenging term, in terms of what has been talked about with contact tracing. What can be done? What can't be done? What are the limitations? What are the opportunities? And so uh, we'll continue to keep hitting home on these um, and hopefully you find them useful. Uh, and uh, we'll let you know when the next one on testing comes out. Well, Mike, uh, you like to wrap up uh, the podcast with some parting words for the audience. Um, what do you want to leave our audience with this week? Thanks, Chris. Uh, let me just conclude again, as I have in past uh, podcasts, about the importance of kindness. Uh, with all the things we have going on, please don't forget how important that is. And I received an email this week uh, that uh, brought tears to my eyes about the concept of kindness. Somebody who had listened to the podcast last week the title of it is Kindness Update, Bagpipe Band, New Normal, an Oval. And uh, named Jerry, he said, for all with some humor, my bagpipe band playing at Blank Children's Medical Center for nurses' shift change. Bagpipe bands play in what's referred to as a circle up formation. I circled play in for me in new normal oval formation. And he circled himself in this six feet apart oval formation. Picture taken by my daughter, a pediatric critical care nurse at the hospital. My wife and I are so proud of her dedication and steadfastness and are so very worried for her and her nurse practitioner husband's safety. Yet he's had time to send this to us and they went and played at shift change just for kindness and they maintained their physical distancing. That's what we need to do more of. Everybody, go out today and be kind. And thank you very much. And I look forward to talking to you next week. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Ostrom. And thanks for listening to the Osterholm Update, COVID-19, a weekly podcast from the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy. We'll be back next week with another episode. Until then, you can keep up with the latest COVID-19 news by visiting our website, sidrap.umn.edu.